Thanks, Denise, Nate, and Craig. Thank you, guys. This town, man, it's full of talent, isn't it? It's amazing to do church in Nashville, where we have such amazing uh, musicians, and we know that God is the God of all creativity, so all music and creativity comes from the Lord, ultimately. So thank you for sharing your, your gifts and your talents with our, our church this morning. And it's true that we are but poor wayfaring strangers, isn't it? It's easy to get comfortable here in this world, but thank you for reminding us that this is a transient thing that we're doing. Life in this world is but a passing thing. This morning we are going to continue with week three of our Be the Church series. And just to recap where we've been a little bit, at week one we talked about how we are covenant people. That if you're a Christian, you're part of the church then you are a, a part of the covenant that God made with Abraham back in Genesis 15, that we are part of this special family of God that God has created and set apart to be the conduit of his blessing to all the world. Remember, God told Abraham, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing, and through you I will bless all the nations of the world. And Paul makes it clear in Galatians 3 that now, we are heirs of Abraham. We are the offspring. We as the church, as Christians, are now charged with being the conduit of blessing. We talked about how Mark Anderson reminded us, don't roll like a bulb, live like a sieve. Be the sieve through which God's blessings pass into the rest of the world. And then last week, we, we, we talked about uh, being missional. This idea that God has given us his plan. He's revealed to us what he's doing. That the protagonist, the hero of the story of everything ever in Scripture has shown us what he desires, and that desire is to bring this entire fallen creation back unto himself, to make right everything that is wrong. And one day, he will finish that work of redemption when he makes all things new, and we have a part to play in that. We said last week that it's not that the church has a mission, it's that the mission has a church, right? That the mission of God is what dictates what the church should be doing. The mission of God is what the lens that we read the Bible through. The mission of God is, is, should be the filter through which we do all of our programs and everything that we do as a church because the mission of God is, is central and key to what it means to be the church. So this week, I want to talk about our identity, who are we as the church in this world? Who are we? Are we some building on a corner, or are we poor, wayfaring strangers? Sometimes we, we do tend to get a little comfortable here in our churches, in our pews. I don't like that song. I'd, I'd rather hear something else, or I didn't care for that message. It went a little too long. Is, it, is that what it's about? I, I remember I felt uncomfortable one time. Uh, I, I married into a, a fanatic Tennessee football family, okay? Uh, my wife's from East Tennessee, and, and I grew up here in Nashville, and I'd, I'd been to some Vandy games. I thought that was a big deal, right? Uh, it, it wasn't anything compared to Neyland Stadium, right? I, I wasn't prepared for when the, the pride of the Southland marching band came out onto the field, and people started going nuts. I didn't know what was even happening, and the place was erupting, and, and they formed this, these lines, and I was like, oh, that, it looks like a, a, a T. Oh, it's opening up. And then people were just screaming all around me. And I had a you know, nice brown neutral T-shirt on. I didn't know what was happening. And then the football team runs through 
the band, runs through the T and over to their sideline, and everybody's just on their feet, screaming themselves hoarse, going nuts because they knew that was going to happen, right? When you're part of a community, you have these rituals and these things that define you. Earlier this football season, one of my friends posted an article on Facebook about football communities and what they're like. The article talked about all these crazy rituals that certain schools have, and then it said, welcome to college football, where this all makes sense. From the tunnel walk at Nebraska to Sandstorm, you know that techno song at South Carolina, to Inner Sandman at Virginia Tech, the Metallica song, to Jump Around at Wisconsin, from War Eagle at Auburn, right, to Chief Osceola at Florida State, from Clanga 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 at Mississippi State Games, to silent waving at Oklahoma State. And then it said, college football is the world's biggest insider's club. It's a sport with too many inane and insanely enjoyable traditions to count. It's off the beaten path. It's messy and absurd. It's nonsensical. It's wonderful. It's always changing and it never changes. Often, the article continued, when you're rooting for a certain school, it, it's because it connects you with some community or cultural experience. If you're part of a particular fan base, it says, maybe you feel connected to something that's larger than yourself. Connecting to that gives you a better sense of who and where you are. So many people in our country find their identity by being connected to a college football tradition. Well, this morning we're talking about another kind of community, right? We're talking about a completely other type where people could, could get together on Sunday mornings and wear choir robes, right? Where people could get together on Sunday morning and shake strangers' hands and smile. If you walked up to Chipotle in Green Hills and started shaking hands wearing a choir robe, and, and talking to folks, people might think you were a bit odd, right? And this is a place where some Sundays, people gather together and they, they take bread and juice and they remember a dead Jewish rabbi who, who died 2,000 years ago. They remember his body and blood at that time. These are strange things that this community partakes in. But what if we could stand up to the world today and confidently say, the church is the world's biggest insider's club. It's a community with too many inane and insanely enjoyable traditions to count. It's off the beaten path. It's absurd and it's messy. All your deacons can tell you that, right? <laughs> it's nonsensical. It's wonderful. And it's always changing and yet it never changes. It connects you to something that's larger than yourself. Connecting to that sacred community gives you a sense of who and where you are. What if we could say to the world, our identity is rooted in this community, the church of Jesus Christ? It's what Peter writes about this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2. I invite you to turn there with me this morning. It's in the back of your Bible, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. The little context here, Peter's writing to Christians who mostly he's never met before. These are Gentile believers all over Asia Minor 
that, that really were part of this first wave of, of the explosion of the early church after Jesus' death and resurrection. And, and they, Peter knows that everything's changed. Peter grew up a good Jewish boy, a fisherman in Galilee, right? But he knows that after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that now the community of God is no longer just the Israelites, but that these Christians have been grafted in now and through this diaspora, this explosion of Roman persecution that was going on, Christians scattered across the known world and were planting churches all over the world. That's the group that Peter writes to because he's concerned that they know who they are, that they are part of the world's biggest insiders club that's full of inane and insanely enjoyable traditions and rituals that never changes and always changes. We know that Peter writes this in an effort to say something to the church about their identity now in Christ. So let's begin with verse 1 in chapter 2. He writes, Put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. The word that Peter's using here for put away usually is, is used for garments. It means to take off of oneself. And why does he say take off these specific things? Why does he encourage the church to put away malice and slander and envy? Because these are the sins that kill community. A community has unity together. That's what it means to be a community. These are the sins that Satan uses to drive wedges between God's people and divide them and destroy community. And then in verses 2 and 3, Peter tells us what we should put on, what we have taken off these awful things of talking bad about each other and hypocrisy and pretense. Not that that ever happens in church, right? And now he says, put those things off, but instead, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You see, Peter knows that when our desires change, we change. Because what we desire is what we become. That's what he's saying. He's saying if you've ever tasted the goodness of God, if you've been born again and made new by the salvation that God brings, then remember that. Think about the goodness of God that you experienced once and crave it again. Long for the goodness of God that is pure and that grows you into the salvation that God has, has brought to you and making you into this new creation that's more and more like Jesus and less and less like the world. That's making you more like a, a, a poor, wayfaring stranger and less like someone who's just at home here on this earth. When our desires change, we change because what we desire is what we become. Don't forget that. And then Peter moves on from this idea of, of our nourishment and what we're feeding ourselves with and, and desiring to our sense of security now and our honor as this new body of Christ. In verse 4, he says, as you come to him, to Christ, he means, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You know, a couple weeks ago at Simple Worship, we were reading on Wednesday night, Ephesians chapter 2, about how we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, but God, who's rich in mercy, has made us alive together with Christ. 
When you come to Christ in conversion and you put your faith and your trust in him, you are brought to life. You were the walking dead before. But now you become like a living stone, like Jesus is alive. You become part of this community of faith as well. You automatically are a part of the church if you are a Christian, when you become born again. And, and what does that mean? You're not just saved so you can die and go to heaven. You remember a couple of weeks ago, I sat right here and told the kids that the church is not a building, right? The church is the people. Well, Peter says it, it kind of is a building. He says here that you are a living stone who makes up this building, this spiritual house of God. The temple of God is made out of God's people who serve as living stones with Christ as the cornerstone of the temple of God. And the rest of us get to be a part of that body. We are put together with Christ in this amazing, beautiful house of God that he's building for himself. And not only are we part of the building, but Peter goes on and says, not only are we part of the, the, the stones that make up the church, but we are also the priests who serve inside the church. We are bringing spiritual sacrifices, it says, to God. This means that we as God's people are offering praise through our lives, through the daily living sacrifices of all that we are. We as priesthood of God now give him back the praise. We serve as his priest in his house who offer our worship daily by giving all that we are to him and dying to ourselves every morning again. Peter's going to come back to this idea of us being the priesthood in verse 9, but he's not done yet with this idea of the house that God's building for himself. He wants to show us that this is not some new thing that God's doing, that the church, the people of God, have always been intended to make up the house of God, the temple where he dwells, even from the Old Testament. He demonstrates here that the Old Testament is full of this kind of imagery. Look at verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He's quoting from Isaiah from 700 years before Jesus, from Isaiah chapter 28, to show how Jesus was God's plan from the very beginning. That Jesus was going to be the cornerstone that holds the whole thing together that he's going to be the one on whom the other stones rely for their identity. And then he, he says that we who trust in the cornerstone will not be put to shame. No, we're going to receive honor instead. If you're part of this beautiful temple, look at verse 7 and 8. So the honor is for you who believe in the cornerstone. But for those who do not believe, then he quotes again from the Old Testament, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, the, the revealed truth of God, as they were destined to do. Again, Peter's quoting from, from Psalms, from chapter 118, from Psalm 118, and then from Isaiah chapter 8, to, to lay out two paths here. The, the person of Jesus Christ confronts the world with a choice. The truth about Jesus makes everyone have to choose. Is Jesus a stone of stumbling? Is he an obstacle in the way that you live your life? Is he offensive? Is the cross offensive to you? Or is it the foundation upon which you are betting your life? Is it the foundation upon which you have built everything? 
He's either a stumbling block or the cornerstone. He can't be both. He's either a stone in your way to your life and he's offensive to you, or he's the one that holds your whole life together as the cornerstone and you're betting everything on him. That's what Peter's laying out. And after he contrasts these two ways of, of looking at the cornerstone, then he returns to the church's identity, who we are now in light of who Jesus is as the cornerstone, what our special role is in this house of God that God is building. Verse 9, he says, but you, he's talking to the church, but you, O church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He's quoting again here from Exodus 19, 5 and 6, you know, right, right before Exodus 20 where the Ten Commandments are given. The Israelites, you know, two, two and a half million of them have been delivered from Egypt from bondage and slavery, and they've been miraculously uh, brought through the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army is all destroyed behind them. And now God brings them to Mount Sinai in the wilderness, and he's addressing Moses up on the mountain, and he says, Moses, tell my people that they are a chosen race, that they are a royal priesthood, that they're set apart, a people for my own possession, who I have consecrated for a reason, because through them, I'm going to redeem the world. I'm going to bless the world and bring the goodness of my salvation through these special people. And now Peter's saying, that's us. That's the church now. We are God's own people. And he's brought us out of the darkness of sin, something far worse than Pharaoh's army. The sin that has to lead to death, he's delivered us through it and from it and forgiven us the debt that we couldn't pay so that now we could be heirs with Jesus Christ himself. Now we get to be part of the special people of God in his marvelous light that we experience, the light of his goodness and glory and truth in which we live our lives now. He's given us an identity and purpose for our lives by making us part of the world's biggest insiders club now with our own rituals and traditions. We are chosen. We are the elect of God from before all time he chose us. We are royal. We're citizens of a kingdom with a king. I was telling my son Jude about the election. He was hearing all this about the election. That's a fun thing to explain to a seven-year-old this year, let me tell you. And, and he said something about, is the president the king? And I said, no, we don't have a king. And he said, well, yes, we do. We do have a king. And I said, no, Jude, we're a democracy. The president is not a king. It doesn't work that way. He said, dad, we have a king. And I said, Jude, no, we don't. You're wrong. He said, Jesus is our king. <laughs> isn't that great? It's awesome when you get a lesson from your seven-year-old, isn't it? Thanks. Thanks for that, Jude. Jesus is our king, and now we are also a priesthood who serve in the house of God. All of us, we talked about last week how it's not just ministers who have been to seminary who are the priest. All of us, if you're in the church, are priests now who deliver sacrifices to God, the sacrifice of praise daily. Now in verse 10, Peter quotes another Old Testament reference. Once you were not a people, he says, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is a reference to Hosea. Hosea, this minor prophet from the 500s, he was prophet during a dark time in Israel's history in the northern kingdom. If you know anything about the northern kingdom during this time in Israel, all the kings were wicked. 
They turned from God and they worshipped false gods. The people of the northern kingdom married these pagan people and they adopted these foreign gods as their gods. They made sacrifices on the mountains to these pagan gods. And Hosea was, was challenged by God to prophesy to these people. And he was told to take a, a prostitute for a wife and that he would take this wife and have these children. And he was told that his son and his daughter should be named Not My People and No Mercy. Those are rough names. I bet those kids had a hard time in school, right? You hear some weird names these days. Not my people and no mercy. But then God shows this beautiful story of redemption, how he redeems this unfaithful wife and these children who were born in this horrible situation, and how the people who were not his people now are his people, and people who had not received mercy now receive mercy. The point is for us as Christians that we who were once far off, according to Ephesians 2, have been brought near now. We were outside the covenant promises of God, and now God has made us his people. He has brought us into the covenant relationship with him through Jesus Christ, his only son, and given us mercy when before we were dead in our trespasses. He has forgiven us and shown us mercy through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Finally, we get to our main point here in verses 11 and 12. Be sojourners and exiles, right? Look at verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. How then should we live in light of these things that God has done for us. He's made us living stones with Christ. He's built us into this beautiful temple of God. So what? How do we live now? He says, live honorable lives among the Gentiles so that they will glorify our Father on the day of visitation. That reminds us of of Matthew 5.16, right? In the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus told the people in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The result is God's glory from our lives as the people of God. As the world's biggest insiders club, we're not to gloat over those who are outside. Look at us. We're the best. Instead, we are to live in such a way that invites them to become part of our club. It's part of our uh, our group so that they may glorify God with us so that God receives the glory that alone is due his name only. And then verse 11, we'll close with this idea of sojourners and exiles who abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our souls, destroy us from the inside out. It seems that we hear a lot these days about exiles and refugees. You can't turn anything on in the news without hearing about refugees from Syria or or Lebanon or wherever uh, they may be from, from from Congo, Tanzania. Um, And when I hear these stories, I think, I can't relate to that. My suburban life in Franklin, you know, where I grew up, it's it's so different. But look at chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Turn the page back and see who Peter is writing to. He's writing to the church, we said, right? But in verse 1 of chapter 1, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, to those who are chosen aliens 
to those who are the select refugees of God. And you read this and you say, well, what are they exiled from? What are they fleeing? It's not just a political designation. When Peter uses the word exiles here, he's talking to you and me, even in our suburban, urban context. He's talking to us, the church. The word in Greek that he's using for exiles really means alien. It means foreigner, stranger, someone who's not from around here. And again, it's not a a political designation only. There's a theme all throughout this letter that Peter's writing that we as the church should, should be different. That we should always feel a little bit out of place here in this life. I, I said earlier that the church is the, like the biggest insiders club in the world, like football, but really maybe it's better to say we're the biggest outsiders club, right? We're, we're not of the world, John 17 said last week. We are the world's biggest outsiders club. The word for church that's used over and over again in the New Testament is ekklesia. It comes from two Greek words, ek, which means out from, and kaleo, which means call. We are the called out ones, is what it means. We are the world's biggest outsiders club, perhaps. And that theme is all throughout this letter. And, And it's all throughout the Bible, too. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, that for God's people, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I know a lot of you are planning to vote this November, but it's important to remember that our primary citizenship, according to the the Bible here, is in heaven. That for us, our, our citizenship is not only in Tennessee in the United States, but it's in heaven where God our Savior reigns fully and justly. There's a a great quote from the 13th century German mystic theologian. uh, He's a a monk named Meister Eckhart. And he says, God is at home. We are in the far country. Isn't that great? God is at home. He is totally comfortable on his heavenly throne where he rules and reigns completely. It is we who are in exile. It is we who are in the far country. When I hear that far country phrase, I think about the prodigal son who squandered his inheritance in the far country. That is where we are now. We are outside of our home. We are longing to be reunited with our homeland. I've met many of you who are from different countries, from different states, and and I know you you long for home deep down for your homeland. That's the, the sense that Christians are to feel. Have you ever felt that way, that you're not at home? I'll I'll never forget the first time I went to Australia in 2000. I was a high school, recent high school graduate, just finished Franklin High School, just graduated, and we we show up at the airport, and I knew it was going to be winter in in Australia, the southern hemisphere, right? It it was June, it was 100 degrees in Nashville. When I stepped uh, into the little chamber, uh, the the, the runway thing, the gangway, uh, between the plane and the airport, I could feel the blast of cold air. It was 35 degrees in Sydney that morning. And then I meet my host family, this sweet lady who's going to put me up in her home, and, and she says, uh, we get out to her car, and I walk around to, she says, you can sit up front, you got, you got long legs, you can sit up front. I say, great. I walk around to the right side of the car, she comes and stands behind me like, what are you doing? I'm like, you said I could sit up front, and she's like, yeah. I was like, oh, I looked down, I saw the steering wheel was on that side. Oh, right, 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 got to go around, you know, went around to the other side. And then she says, hey, be a deer and put the pram in the boot. And I said, 
uh, what? And she said, put the pram in the boot. And I said, I don't know what you're saying. And she looked at me like I was some dumb American who couldn't speak plain English, right? She says, put the pram in the boot. And I said, I don't know what that means. Please help me. And she said, oh, right. She realized before I did what was happening. She said, what do you call it? Uh, a stroller. Put the stroller in the, uh, in the boot. And I said, okay, I got stroller. She had a toddler with her in a stroller. And then I, I had no idea what the boot was. And she realized that it's the trunk of the car, right? The boot and the bonnet is the hood, as they say in Australia. I was keenly aware that I was not at home, that I was in a far country, many, many thousands of miles from Nashville, Tennessee. God's people are meant to live this way. God's people are meant to be aware of this truth that we are not at home, to constantly be longing for where we are from, to have this pervasive feeling, this knowledge that Dorothy had when she shows up in Oz and tells Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. That's the way in which we should live our lives. Last week we read John 17, and again, Jesus prays for his disciples to know that we're not of this world, but we are sent into this world for a mission, for God's mission. The 11th chapter of Hebrews probably has the best uh, phrase on this idea of exiles. You know the 11th chapter of Hebrews is sometimes re referred to as the hall of faith. It lists all these famous people from the Bible who've done these amazing things. It starts with Abel, Enoch, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. It lists all the amazing things that they've done throughout the Bible. And then it says in verse 13, these all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, <coughs> excuse me, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. <clears throat> if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, <clears throat> they would have the opportunity to return. <clears throat> but as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, a heavenly city. They have acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles. They were seeking a better country. Are you part of the church this morning? <clears throat> Are you redeemed by the blood of the land, like we just sang? If so, are you comfortable here? Or are you deep down longing for something better? Do you understand that our heavenly home is not this world? Are you keenly aware of the brokenness and fallenness of the world around you so that you may be hopeful about what is to come in our heavenly home? Are you more of a tourist instead of an exile? You know what tourists are. Tourists know that they're not, they're not at home, but instead of being uncomfortable, they just sample everything they can while they're away. They try to maximize their personal enjoyment of wherever they are, just for the time being. The, the question for us today is, are you a tourist or an exile? Are you a tourist who's just taking all you can and trying to be comfortable in this life? Or are you keenly aware of your refugee status as a foreigner and as a stranger? The church is meant to be different. We're exiles. We're not tourists in this world. This world is not our home. We are but poor, wayfaring strangers. It's not an easy life. The Bible says that for exiles, we are going to be hated by this world. 
that exiles are persecuted, that exiles suffer in this life for Christ. <clears throat> but John 17 also says that exiles are protected from the evil of this world, that we are made holy in the word of truth in this life, that exiles are united by Jesus Christ who builds us into this beautiful temple of God together. So are you a tourist today? Are you trying to make yourself comfortable in this world? Or do you long for a better country? Are you keenly aware of the, the brokenness around you and your call to redeem it? Do you fully identify with the other strange and crazy members of this body, the world's biggest outsiders club, the church? A community with too many inane and insanely enjoyable traditions to count. We're off the beaten path. We are messy and absurd. We are nonsensical. We are wonderful. It's always changing, and it never changes. But when it's really being the church, it changes the world. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray this morning that you would help us to be the church better. I pray that you would build us into this perfect house of God that you've called us to be. Lord, I pray that you would help us to avoid being too comfortable in this life, to settling for the pleasures of this world and forgetting that we were made for something else. We were made for another country, that our true citizenship is in heaven with you, where you reign completely. God, you are at home. We are in the far country. May we remember the hope we have in Jesus Christ, who makes all things new, including us, and prepares a city for us to dwell in one day in heaven. God, I thank you for your word that shows us these things. We pray for anyone here this morning who's not a member of the church, who needs that sense of community, who's experienced the isolation in this fallen world for too long. God, we pray that they would find hope and community and truth and love in the church here at Woodmont or another church, God. We love you. We thank you for this time together. We pray these things in Jesus' high and holy name. Amen.